This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast for episode 56 is Jungian analyst and professor Dr. Kenneth James. He holds a PhD in Communicative Sciences and Disorders from Northwestern University and a diploma in Analytical Psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Along with a background in mathematics, he trained as a music therapist and completed four years of postdoctoral study in theology and scripture at the Catholic Theological Union. He has also taken lay ordination as a Zen Buddhist and studied the Kabbalah. Dr. James holds the rank of Professor Emeritus after a 33-year career as a university professor and now devotes his time as founder and director of the Soulwork Center in downtown Chicago, where he practices as a Jungian analyst. In addition to his appearance in episode 45, he has been a guest on Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight, Fade to Black with Jimmy Church, and the late-night radio show Coast to Coast AM. Dr. James is a frequent speaker at the C.G. Jung Center in Evanston, Illinois, where I recently attended one of his Ask an Analyst sessions. That lively discussion in front of a packed house gave me the idea to have Dr. James back to the podcast for a deep dive into Jung's terminology, concepts, and ideas. Later, I will ask Dr. James to share his thoughts with us about the esoteric symbolism of the number seven as it relates to the new BTS album, Map of the Soul 7, which was discussed in episode 55 with Dr. Murray Stein. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information and links on everything that will be discussed here today. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, March 4th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Dr. James, I've asked you back to the podcast today because I had the idea when listening to you speak recently at the Jung Center that we should go over all of Jung's main terms and concepts for the listening audience. So what would you say in general right now about Jungian terminology? Well, you have to understand that the terminology is very different than terminology in other fields, especially scientific fields, because there a term means something very specific. Everyone has agreed that that's what it means, and we never use it in any other way. But in psychology in general, and certainly in Jungian psychology, uh, that isn't true. And the terminology is much more, uh, I don't want to say loose, but I will say organic and is still in development because analytical psychology, Jung's psychology, is a dynamic field and terms change. Okay, so let's start there. You mentioned Jung's psychology, analytical psychology. Let's make that our first term for you to define. What is analytical psychology? So analytical psychology is the sort of trademark name for Jungian psychology. Um, there were three what we might call depth psychology um, movements that 
started in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, the psychology that's attributed to the, the theories of Freud is called psychoanalysis. Uh, the psychological body of knowledge that is associated with Adler is called individual psychology. And Jungian psychology was called analytical psychology. Is it correct to call it Jungian psychology or not? Absolutely. Oh, okay. yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, Jung himself referred to it as analytical psychology, I think probably because of his innate Swiss modesty. Um, but everybody else pretty much calls it Jungian psychology. Meaning he didn't want to name it after right. himself. Right. So Jung was trained as a psychiatrist. How did that morph into psychology? So psychiatry in his day was still in what we might judge to have been to, to be primitive, uh, in that there was a basic ignoring, especially of significantly disturbed patients, ignoring of what they actually were presenting in favor of finding a way to calm them, contain them, and some of the procedures were quite harsh. Cold and hot water baths, uh, restricting a person physically, these were all techniques that were used. Jung worked with severely mentally ill patients mm -hmm. as a psychiatrist, and he treated them with a great deal of respect. And one thing that he did do that contributed greatly to the start of his own work was he listened to them. And he listened to the content of what other people might judge as delusions, hallucinations, ranting, raving. He listened to the content and had the sense that if you listen to the content, you definitely see evidence of what in those days would have been called their madness, but you also saw clues to how they could be treated to get better. And that really is his greatest gift, is to pay attention to what a patient, an analysand, an individual is expressing, not just in speech, but physically and in terms of movement, because in all of that, are the seeds of healing. So his work with psychiatric patients became a psychology? It did, because he was very aware that the field of psychology contributed to psychiatric treatment, but it didn't really drive it. The, the, the driver was really the medical model. We're going to alleviate a symptom if possible, get rid of it one way or another, and that's going to be the focus. And there was a very clear line of demarcation between what was disease or pathology and what was not. And that's, that's constitutive to the medical model, and it's useful in a lot of fields. He felt maybe not so much when we're dealing with the psyche. He also was aware that contributions to psychiatric understanding and psychological understanding can come from a wide variety of fields, not just the medical field. And he wanted, I believe, to be open 
to all of the possible contributors to an understanding of the phenomenon of the psyche. So it became, and he even defined himself as a psychologist, meaning one who studies the psyche rather than, although he was, a psychiatrist, and the root of that word is literally the illness of the psyche, so or a doctor of the psyche, but it implies that we're looking at something pathological that needs to be corrected. He was no fool. He knew that the, the uh, people that were in the hospital needed to be in such a restrictive environment, but he felt that they needed to be respected and all of the ways that they were expressing their condition needed to be honored. This podcast is subtitled Interviews with Jungian Analysts. What exactly now is a Jungian analyst? So formally, a Jungian analyst is someone who has gone through training that is approved by the International Association for Analytical Psychology and has completed certain assignments, certain tasks to receive the diploma in analytical psychology. So from the point of view of credentialing, people with the diploma in analytical psychology from an institute that is affiliated with the institute in Switzerland, the IAAP, that is what a Jungian analyst needs or what a person needs to be called a Jungian analyst. But the idea of analysis also carries the uh, connotation of work that takes a long time and work that is not directed by either the analyst or the patient. And, and the term we used to refer to the patient is the analysand. But in fact, both partners sit with the reality of the psyche as it unfolds. So it takes a fairly long time. It takes um, guidance, but not direction from the analyst. And it takes open participation on the part of the analysis as well. So that's sort of what Jungian analysis is. But a Jungian analyst, I just want to uh, say a little bit more about that, because I get asked that question probably the most, what is a Jungian analyst? It's not you know, a therapist who's read a bit of Jung or a psychologist who is interested in Jung. It's also not something that's earned in a weekend. Oh, no. In a weekend no. workshop. So what exactly are the requirements or the procedure to become a Jungian analyst? Okay, that that is a good question. Um, first of all, it is not a weekend workshop thing. Not at all. Um there is a lot of work that has to be done prior to even entering analyst training. And the fundamental difference between being an analyst and being a therapist is the analyst has gone through his or her own analysis a couple of times. So, for example, in my case, uh, I entered my first analysis with no thought of wanting to become an analyst. And that went on for about nine years. And then when that completed, I felt that I wanted more. I wanted to um, continue in my connection with Jung. And I didn't quite know how to do it. So I went back to my analyst and he said, well, have you considered 
thinking of becoming an analyst. And I said, well, no, I hadn't. He said, well, why don't you just think about it? And I did, and I ended up applying. And uh, to get in took a year because there were many, many interviews and things you had to write and evaluations. Um, And then the training generally minimally takes five years. Most people spend longer. So you said that the application process took you a year. Yes. And also one thing I wanted to mention is there are requirements to entering a training program. You can't just have a bachelor's degree. What are the requirements? So in addition to the personal analysis, which continues before the training, continues all the way through training, and for most of us continues forever. (laughs) Right. Um, In addition to that, Academic credentials require either a doctorate or a terminal master's degree, like a master's of social work. And the person, by the time they finish training, actually in Chicago, it's by the time they begin training, the uh, candidate to become an analyst has to be a licensed mental health professional. So there's that requirement as well. Not only do you have to fulfill academic requirements, but also Uh, state requirements for licensure. The next term is the unconscious. And is it the same as the subconscious? Uh, No, but I'll start by defining the unconscious. Okay. Uh, The unconscious refers to that part of the psyche or that aspect of the psyche that is unavailable to the ego. And I realize as we're talking Inevitably, I'm going to be using other terms because Jung's psychology is, it it is a complete system. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, I'll be using other terms, but we can get to the definitions of those later. Uh, Neither Jung nor Freud really use the term subconscious much. Uh, Jung tended not to use it at all because the, the prefix sub implies some sort of less than quality and places the ego in a position of superiority over the, over the subconscious. Um, but the unconscious doesn't have that connotation at all. It is not even a co-equal part. It is the dominant part of the psyche. Where we enter a little bit of confusion is the word unconscious is also used in the general vernacular as meaning kind of somebody who's lost consciousness or has been knocked out. They're unconscious. That's not the the way we use it. Um, Even though both of us are not unconscious now, we're not asleep um, in our beds or anesthetized. Much of what is driving us is unconscious. And the unconscious has an impact on what we do and say and think and feel and imagine. And developing a relationship between consciousness, which is a function of the ego, and the unconscious is part of the goal of analytic work. How is the unconscious accessed? The unconscious actually accesses us (laughs) rather than the other way around. I love it. So the unconscious 
basically connects with what I'll call the ego complex through dreams, projections, displacement, all of the good terms that people learned in their Psych 101 classes. Um, The synchronicity is another way that the unconscious communicates with us. The most that the ego can do, but it's quite an accomplishment, is to acknowledge that there is this autonomous part of the psyche, this part that is separate from my will, my identity, my place in the world, and that this portion of the psyche called the unconscious exerts an influence on the ego. And so it behooves the ego to develop a relationship with it so that there's a flow from conscious to unconscious and back again. And so how do we do that? I think one way is for us to know that we are not conscious most of the time, that we may do things deliberately. We can do a lot of things deliberately, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are fully conscious. In fact, we cannot ever be fully conscious of all of the determinants of a particular event in our psychic life. What is the collective unconscious? So the collective unconscious is a term unique to Jungian psychology, and it refers to an aspect of the unconscious, an aspect of the psyche that is simply present by virtue of being human. In order to understand the collective unconscious, we have to contrast it with the term personal unconscious, and we have to do a little bit of discussion of Freud. For Freud, the unconscious was a repository of material that when the ego experienced it in life, uh, the ego was unable to process all of it. And so the unprocessed material gets put into the unconscious for later processing. Jung never argued with that as one of the aspects of the unconscious. But Jung was very aware that there were elements in the unconscious that exerted an influence on the individual that were never part of the individual's experience. And as Jung became more and more aware of what that was, he began to refer to it as the unconscious that is simply present in all of us, hence the collective unconscious. And it was distinct from the personal unconscious uh, that Freud talked about. Freud didn't use the term personal unconscious. For Freud, the unconscious, the personal unconscious was all there was, so there was no need for the, the term personal. But Jung made that distinction because Jung discovered a very interesting thing. If the unconscious really were simply what Freud said it was, namely a repository of unprocessed material, residue, one might say, from our just our living our lives in, in the world, then it would be pretty disorganized. Because I don't live my life in an organized way. I have experiences, something else happens, and <clears throat> there's a lot of material that gets put into the unconscious. But the unconscious is very well organized. And 
So Jung asks the question, where does that organization come from? And for him, he found indicators of where that organization came from when he looked at mythologies around the world, when he looked at legends and stories and works of art. And Jung came to understand that there were structural sort of elements in the psyche that exerted an influence on how we experience the world and also organized the unconscious in particular clusters of thoughts, feelings, ideas, and images. And he called those clusters in the personal unconscious complexes. And the complexes were formed around these organizing principles that are common to all of us that are in the collective unconscious that Jung ultimately came to call the archetypes. You've mentioned the word ego quite a few times. Mm -hmm. So would you define what Jung meant by the ego? For Jung, the ego is the complex of my personal identity. The ego is the place where the I exists. So the ego for Jung was a complex. For Freud, the ego was a structural part of the psyche. That meant that for Freud, the ego was simply there, the way my hand is, is on my body. And even if I don't use it, even if I'm asleep, my hand is still there. For Jung, that wasn't the case. The ego was a complex among many other complexes. And during the course of a day, my ego complex may be present, and then it may be replaced without my knowing by another complex. Let's say a complex of superiority or a complex of inferiority or what, you know, there, there's countless numbers of complexes. But the distinction of, you know, what the ego is as a complex for Jung versus what it is as a, a structural part of the psyche for Freud allows Jungian psychology to be much more humble when we confront the contents of the unconscious. I heard you say in a lecture that other schools of psychology think that the ego is all there is. Yes. But yeah. Jung didn't. Oh, no. Neither did Freud or any of the other so-called depth schools of psychology. Mm -hmm. But uh, behaviorism, cognitive behaviorism, I mean, they may acknowledge the, the concept of an ego, but it's, it's unimportant because if you don't acknowledge the existence of the unconscious, then positing an ego makes no sense. You don't need it. That simply is what psyche is, my identity this experience. This is all that, that there is. So there is almost a systematic ignoring of phenomena that we can't explain, and there's plenty of that, mm -hmm. because those other schools of psychology are so invested in the fact that the ego consciousness is really all there is to the psyche. Where does the persona come in? How is the ego different from the persona? 
if you imagine the ego as a circle, this might be helpful. And it's a circle that floats on top of a border, an artificial border, but we'll call it a border, between the so-called outer world and the so-called inner world. And the persona is an arrangement of elements around the ego that allow the ego to interact with the so-called outer world. So the persona can be thought of as, and the word does mean mask, the persona can be thought of as a mask that we wear that to a certain extent we have selected for, but in other ways uh, is formed unconsciously as well. And it is how we are wanting to be perceived and experienced by others and the world at large. It's how the ego wants to be perceived. Right. It okay. is, it, it's a mediator between the ego and the outer world is a way to think of it. So then where does the shadow come in? Imagine this. Okay, there is, if not an infinite, certainly a very, very large number of qualities that make up a human being, a, a personality. Mm -hmm. And the persona is really a process of selection and intensification from that vast array of possibilities of a certain subset of those possibilities that we identify with, that we, we feel um, is the way that we want to be experienced by the world. And we don't necessarily construct a persona with full consciousness, but there is some deliberate manipulation, that's not the right term, but some deliberate construction of the ego. So for example, I may value peacefulness and kindness. So because I value that, I'm going to want to have that as part of my persona. That means that not being peaceful and being unkind would fall into what in Jungian psychology we call the shadow. So sort of the opposite qualities. Often it's the opposite qualities of the persona, right? My pet peeve is when people refer to the shadow as the dark side, dark meaning unseen, yes, but not bad and evil no. and... No, mm -mm. it's just no. all the things that I don't want to be. Yes, and yet I could. Yeah. And that's very important because when we really work on understanding psyche, we come to see that basically all of the ways that human beings can be, and we can witness this in a newspaper and throughout history, those are all ways that we could, each one of us could be as well. We all have the capacity. Yes, right. An argument that I hear whenever I say that, because as you can tell by my voice and how animated I'm becoming and how fast I'm talking, we've triggered a complex, right? Which we'll get to later. Okay. Okay. So when it maybe comes to something as extreme as murder, when I say, well, we all have it all. We all have that in us. And mm -hmm. I'll get somebody's comeback being, I, I would never commit murder. 
well, I know that you don't think you would, Mm -hmm. but something could drive you to that point because you are human. Right. Right. And what I would want to ask that person who said I would never commit murder, okay, you might not commit murder on the, you know, the plane of space and time in which we live with one another, but, you know, you've had dreams where there's been murder and I'm almost positive that you may have had thoughts that we could say have murderous qualities to them. Mm -hmm. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from that vast storehouse called the unconscious. And for a lot of reasons, socialization, um, family tradition, cultural identity, community values, whatever, um, there might be a lot of, of things that contribute to my decision, seemingly, not to be a murderer but that doesn't mean I don't have the possibility for it. Right. So you see, when you, when you begin to imagine that there are certain qualities of the human person that are simply not able to be experienced by me, you are constructing a split. And that is always the beginning of falling deeply, deeply, deeply into the unconscious. Our next term is anima and animus. Okay. Or anima and animus. Yes, depending on how (laughs) educated you want to sound. (laughs) Right. Well, those are, here again, you, one thing that excites me about Jungian psychology is everything connects. So in order to understand anima and animus, I'll define them formally, and then we'll talk about their dynamic. You, you have to understand them from the perspective of what they do to us in contrast to what the shadow does to us. So okay. first I'll define anima and animus. The uh, Jung posited that in the unconscious, there is an other, I'll call it the ultimate other. And to this ultimate other, he used the term anima or animus. Now, in terms of our 21st century awareness, some of the ways Jung talked about these terms are unfortunate because he did genderize them rather stereotypically. So the anima refers to the feminine aspect of the psyche that is found in the unconscious of the male. And the animus refers to the masculine aspect of the psyche that is found in the unconscious of a woman. Now you can already begin to get a hint of why this would this theory uh, continues to be a controversial one for Jungians in the 21st century. If you read what Jung wrote about them, there, there's a lot of gender stereotyping in, Jungian, uh, in Jung's writings. And I think we have to cut him some slack because of when he lived and the society that he came from. Um, Absolutely. But fundamental to the energy of anima and animus is the fact that it is attractive. We want to get closer to it. We want to get to know it. It represents experiences that we can't have given basically 
the way we present to the world. So I'll use myself as an example. I am male. I identify with being male. And <clears throat> as such, there are experiences that I can never have. And I'm not just talking about giving birth or, or menstruating. Mm -hmm. But there are experiences I can never have simply because my embodiment as a male precludes it. All of those qualities are still very interesting to me. And so the anima appears as an embodiment of those qualities. And I feel drawn to it. So here's where the anima and the animus uh, can be seen in, in contrast to the shadow. The shadow is everything I find repulsive. When I am close to shadow material, and I'll talk about how I can get close to shadow material, I want to get away. I am uncomfortable. I don't like it. It feels wrong. Nobody should be that way. That's shadow. When I'm in the presence of anima or animus, I feel like I want to get to know that person. I want to get to have that experience. I want to move toward it. And so if we look at it that way, we see that it's the dynamism of repulsion from the shadow and attraction for the anima or the animus. And since both of these are largely unconscious, I experience them most often in projection. So <clears throat> the person that I see, it might be someone in my life, it might be someone on the news, it might be, who knows, a character in a story that I absolutely despise. And if you, if you think about it, there's very little reason why I should despise many of the, <laughs> many of the people I do. Because um, I don't know anything about them. But whenever you get that feeling like, ugh, I know everything about that person and they are horrible, we're looking at shadow projection. On the other hand, the capacity to fall in love or make a friend or want to get close to somebody or something usually denotes projection of anima or animus onto that entity or experience. Let's talk about the term projection. Mm -hmm. So projection refers to, it's one of the ways the unconscious communicates with us, and maybe I'll start there. I said earlier that Jung was interested in looking at the psyche from a non-pathological point of view. And that would, that would be the case even for something as troublesome as projection. Projection is when there are unconscious elements in my own psyche that the ego has defended against as being part of my psyche. So they will only be experienced by me or they will largely be experienced by, by me when I'm not asleep and having a dream through projection. So projection becomes a way that the unconscious tries to make us aware of what's going on by hanging these qualities or um, characteristics on another person or another institution out in the world. And if what I am projecting is shadow material, I'm, I'm going to be against that. I'm going to not want to be near it. I'm going to want to disassociate from it. And if what I'm projecting is anima or animus, I'm going to want to get close to it. Let's say somebody points out to us 
that we are projecting. Mm -hmm. That is not like we're doing something wrong, we're doing something bad. It's calling our awareness to wait a second. We're mm -hmm. seeing it out there instead of in here. Right, right, right. <clears throat> yeah, it isn't it isn't negative. The the danger is not projection. The danger is believing it. You know, because we project all the time. We have to. We we can't possibly wait until we have all of the data for any given circumstance before we engage it. We would never do anything. So we project, we interact, we pull the projection back, we reproject, we interact, we pull the projection back, and that's the dynamism of relationship. How does one pull a projection back? Yeah, that's the hard work. <laughs> and that First, is yeah. part of what we do in analysis. That's definitely part of what we do in analysis, because analysis can be thought of as a neutral territory where two people come together that who are relative strangers to one another, except insofar as they're engaged in this um, activity of analysis. And there is an understanding <clears throat> that when something is named, we're not saying it's wrong. So if somebody comes in and they're really having a lot of difficulty with their sister and, you know, their sister doesn't take care of their parents and their sister never sends you know, holiday cards and uh, on and on. Perhaps in an analytic session, I would say, well, I wonder what part of you your sister is carrying. And that's usually met with, well, not at all. Mm -hmm. But after a while, because it becomes very clear in the analytic setting that nobody's judging anybody here, we can begin to look at and maybe begin to question our certitude about these qualities that I have endowed my sister with. It doesn't mean that my sister isn't doing certain things that trouble me, but that's a whole other level of interaction mm -hmm. than simply going, she's a bad person. She's uncaring. You know, if somebody does something that troubles me and I'm aware of it and I don't believe my projection, I might go to them and say, you know, why don't you ever get together with us over the holidays? And then if I can be open to what the person can tell me, then we can move forward. But as long as I believe that projection, why would I want to? Similarly, let's take the example of falling in love. When someone falls in love or when, a, when two people fall in love, there's mutual projection, and that's not a problem. That's a necessary part of uh, being human. But then over the course of being in relationship, you begin to pull back some of your projections and take a look at who's there. It's always sad when, you know, people say, oh, well, this isn't the person I married. Well, yeah, it never was. You created that person and then in developing deeper and deeper intimacy, you come to sort of loosen up your projections about that person from the, the actual person. It doesn't mean that you fall any less in love with them, but you begin to experience the whole person. 
which you can also begin to experience for someone on whom you've projected shadow. A type of projection, and this is another one of Jung's term, is transference. Yeah. So transference, I, <laughs> I kind of think of transference as projection that costs uh, whatever your analyst charges. <laughs> um, but transference is the projecting of material from the unconscious onto the analyst. And, you know, it can be positive, it can be negative, it could be idealizing, it could be uh, terminology like a uh, term twinship transference. Oh, I love my analyst. He knows exactly what's going on with me because we're alike. You know, that's a, that's a transferential statement. And there is also, and Jung made a very, very big deal of this, countertransference. Now, Freudians talk about countertransference as well. But in general, countertransference, which refers to the projection of material from the analyst onto the analysand, which is going to happen, right? If you have two people, you're going to have projection. For the Freudians, countertransference is really considered a fault. Because if the analyst is adequately trained and adequately analyzed, the theory goes that the countertransference becomes less. I don't buy that. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. But Jung was very interested in looking at countertransference as well, because he was very clear that in analysis, both people have got to be confronting the unconscious together, or it isn't analysis. And that could be, you know, one of the ways that we distinguish analysis from therapy. Because the model in therapy is the person who has the problem goes to the person who will help them fix their problem. In analysis, we come together to more deeply explore unconscious material that may be limiting our ability to experience our lives fully. And that has to be a two-way street. I heard you say once that in analysis, it's two people sitting before the self, yes. which brings us to our next term of Jung's, the self. What is the self? Whoa, this is probably one of the most difficult concepts yeah. in Jungian psychology. And this is a term that really emphasizes for us how in psychology we use terminology and it's not well-defined <laughs> the way it would be in mathematics. So, you know, there's self, like we could go to the store and buy self magazine, right? That's not the self that Jung's talking about. Mm -hmm. The self from a Jungian perspective is the core of the individual. It is the center of the psyche. It is the place at which all of us are connected throughout all space and across all time. And the self is the archetype that forms the core of the ego complex. So the reason that I have a sense of I-ness, a sense of my ego, is because of the self. And 
It's a very abstract term. It's controversial. Even in Jungian circles, the way the self is handled, there are differences, uh, three distinct schools of thought in Jungian psychology about how we should conceptualize the self. And it is definitely not the self as it's referred to in other depth psychological fields. Uh, for example, here in Chicago, very famous psychoanalyst, Freudian, uh, Heinz Kohat, developed his particular sub-school of psychoanalytic thought, and it came to be called self-psychology. Uh, but his use of the term self is, is significantly different from Jung's. If you read what Jung writes about the self, you can begin to see certain transpersonal qualities and perhaps even mystical qualities. And of course, this is something that Western psychology has difficulty with because Western psychology still is trying to claim its identity as a science. So that makes a concept like the self very difficult mm -hmm. because it's not going to be amenable to empirical investigation, which from a scientific point of view would be the sine qua non of um, investigation. I ought to be able to do an empirical study of this phenomenon and then learn something concrete about it. And that's not going to happen with the self. The self represents all of our potential and the self also represents the, the point at which all of the disparate parts that make up, in my case, the person who calls himself Ken, where all of those parts cohere, where all of those parts hang together, that's at the level of the self. How does it relate to the soul? Oof, that's a tricky one. So the way I like to think of the soul, so we're going to have to use another term here that is not from Jung, but it's from one of Jung's uh, early students and an analyst in his own right, Edward Edinger, coined the term the ego-self-axis. And you can imagine this as the connecting link that goes from the self to the ego and from the ego back to the self. And that link would probably be where I would put uh, the soul. It is the active connection between the ego and the self. Now, that is my conceptualization. And there would be plenty of other ideas about that. But that's one that I found useful and that I teach. Uh, and people generally think it's helpful. Earlier, you had mentioned the word complex. And that's a big one in terms of Jung's psychology. So how would you define Jung's term complex? I would define it as follows. It's a feeling, and this will be totally useless, a feeling tone set of ideas and images with an archetypal core. And I'll come back to, to each of those. Okay. But you're right that uh, this is a key concept in Jungian psychology. And in fact, Jung is the one who developed the concept. He developed the concept through his early investigations uh, of the unconscious through experiments like the word association test and other 
ways of sitting with a patient, sitting with an analysand. And the complex is a collection of qualities in the personal unconscious that form and are, are coherent because of their connection to the archetypal core. And complexes come and go all through our day. So <clears throat> the ego is a complex. It might be replaced by, you know, a very petulant, angry complex. That's the one that usually overtakes me when I'm in a traffic jam. And I start to project idiocy on all of the other drivers, never realizing my own idiocy. <laughs> the complex is really how we come to understand and connect with the unconscious. Freud, even though because early, like in the early part of the 20th century, Freud and Jung came to a parting of the ways, a very significant parting of the ways. Freud always attributed to Jung the formation of the term or the um, initiation of the term complex. And he felt that it was a very valuable concept that was still and is still used in psychoanalysis. And when Freud would refer to Jungian psychology or analytical psychology, he would call it complex psychology. Because that was the one concept that he felt he could continue to accept from Jung. I think that the biggest thing I took away from my analysis is being able to recognize when I am in a complex, mm -hmm. which sometimes it takes a while. Mm -hmm. And then I think when you recognize you're in a complex, then by that point, you're out of it, right? Well, you could actually recognize you're in a comp uh, not really i think that you can recognize you're in a complex and begin to work your way out of it but but being aware is really 60 percent of the battle mm -hmm. you earlier in our conversation you said um well i can tell because i'm speaking more quickly and i'm becoming more animated that i'm in a complex so you worked your way out of it but you were probably in it when you noticed it because of all your analytic work. Right. You know, we, we come to note our complex indicators and we all have a, a fairly finite set of complex indicators. You know, maybe we become much more certain about our opinions or maybe we clam up and don't want to interact with someone. Mm -hmm. And these, these could be, and they're very individual, ways that, we can begin to say to ourselves, oh, I think I'm falling into a complex. And then sometimes the best thing you could do is just shut up <laughs> until it passes. Mm -hmm. Or write the email and don't send it. And don't send it, right, mm -hmm. correct. Which is not always an easy thing to do. And a complex will always show up in the body, right? Uh, yes, although people have differential um, sensitivity to various bodily indicators of the complex. I remember my first analyst, it was so interesting. It gave me the creeps at first, not in a, a horrible way. But I would be sitting talking, and I would notice that his gaze would just, maybe he'd focus on my hands, or he'd focus on the, over above my head, or look down at my feet. And gradually over time, he came to 
say to me, you know, whenever you talk about a certain thing, have you noticed that your hands make fists? And I hadn't. Or you may be crossing your legs, but when you talk about that person, you uncross them and plant them firmly on the ground, almost like you're going to get up ready to fight them. Mm -hmm. I hadn't noticed that, but that's part of the gift of analysis is because it's a completely, you know, non-judgmental, open and safe space, my analyst could offer that to me. And, you know, he didn't say like, this is the truth and you have to accept it. But I had to admit, no, I never noticed that I was doing that with my hands or I never noticed that I would do that with my feet. And little by little, we can develop a deeper awareness of the physical manifestations of the complex as well, which can be very helpful because our bodies often know before our mind that something's going on. And it's said that at the core of every complex is an archetype. Yes. So what is an archetype? An archetype is a, basically an organizing principle found in the collective unconscious that is what we use to create experience. Jung used to say that the archetype is to experience what the instinct is to behavior. So if you think about an instinct, we respond instinct instinctually. So if there were a loud crash that happened where you were or where I was right now, I would have a response to that. I might be, you know, my eyes would pop open. I might look in the direction where I thought I heard the sound. I would become very vigilant. That All of those are instinctual. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying, oh, I heard a sound. I should orient to the sound. It's just there, okay? The archetype creates experience in much the same way. So the archetype allows for a selection and intensification of certain elements in our experiential surrounding and then allows us to form that experience in very particular ways based on the archetypal sort of structuring that we give it. So let's use an example of an archetype being at the core of a complex. Okay. For example, the mother archetype mm -hmm. and a mother complex. Yes. All right. So how does that yeah. work? There is an archetypal core. And w even when we say the mother complex or the father complex, We've already moved away from the archetype in itself to an archetypal image. But there is an archetypal core that gives rise to what we would call experiences of mothering. And the mother complex would be a distillation, a selection, an intensification of certain of those qualities in relation to my personal mother or my personal experiences of mothering. And then that becomes an internalized part of my personal history that is very connected to this archetype of the great mother or the mother archetype. Often there people experience, because our parents are human, right? So they're not going to be perfect and there's inevitably going to be wounding 
that we experience from mother, father, siblings, you know. And so that our mother complex or our father complex becomes more and more narrow vis-a-vis the vast possibilities that we would find in the mother archetype, the archetype of the great mother or the father archetype, the archetype of the great father. And part of, you know, people often say, well, I don't know if this analysis thing is for me because I know we talk a lot about the mother, which is not necessarily true from a Jungian perspective. Right. Um, And my mother's been dead for 20 years, so there's nothing I can do there. Well, the person who was your mother may have been dead for 20 years, but mother is alive and well in you. Mm -hmm. And the more we can move from experiences of the personal mother, which may have been wounding or or not, I mean, they may have been idealizing uh, experiences, by taking a look at all of the other ways that mother has been presented to us over the course of millennia of human history, we can begin to soften the influence of our personal mother complex and begin to open up to a much broader array of the mother or the father. Our next term is individuation. So individuation is the term that Jung used to describe the goal of analytic work. And it is never attained 100%. And Jung did interesting things with words. And individuation is one of the words that he did very interesting things with because he said that you know, we call ourselves individuals, but actually we're not. We are individuals. We are divided. You know, there's part of me that wants to do one thing, part of me that wants to do another thing. Sometimes I behave one way on one day and another way on another day, and somehow I feel that I'm one person. And I suppose I am in the sense that I experience the world in this body, but There are so many complexes that flow through me and that vie for supremacy over the course of a day and night because complexes are active even in sleep. And when we become aware of just how scattered we can be, we can begin to take steps. The beginning is to simply honor the fact that we are in intimate connection with the unconscious and we need to sustain that relationship, we begin to become less divided within ourselves. And that's why Jung used the term individuation as the goal of analysis, because the goal is to become more whole, which is what the term individuation means, to become undivided more coherent, more harmonious with all of our parts, all of our complexes and all the archetypes that flow through us and all of the experiences that we have to endure or enjoy in our day-to-day life. That's brilliant. I love that. I want to turn now to Jung's model of typology and 
those terms and how Jung's typology is not the Myers-Briggs model. Yes. In Jung's model of typology, we have introvert, extrovert, and then we have the four functions, thinking, feeling, intuition, and sensation. If you would just briefly go over that model and how Jung's model is not the kind of model that seems popular that's out there right now. Like so many other concepts in Jungian psychology, you see, Jung didn't just sit, you know, on some sort of academic throne and write about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Virtually every concept, every tech, well, there aren't many techniques in Jungian psychology, but everything about Jungian psychology is based on experience. And typology is no different. And Jung wrote about typology because he was devastated by the fact that he and Freud apparently were unable to repair the rift that happened between them. And Adler was also, you know, it was very difficult for Freud, Adler, and Jung to this is Alfred Adler, Mm -hmm. to find common ground. And yet, this puzzled Jung because they really were all trying to do the same thing. They were trying to approach the psyche with deep respect and find ways to help ease suffering by looking at the unconscious. So Jung was puzzled. Why couldn't we agree on things? Why couldn't we work it out? What was so difficult? And that was how he began to think about the notion of psychological type. And therefore, Jung's treatment of psychological type is very dynamic, very organic. There's a shifting and a changing. There might be certain circumstances where I'm, I, if I take a look at a typological test, I come out very introverted. But my whole life has involved me in extroverted pursuits. I was a teacher. I did performing. I, you know, I've done a lot of extroverted things. Mm -hmm. So under certain circumstances, I can move into an extroverted place. And then other times, you know, I can teach a class of 75 people, no problem. But if I go out to dinner, I'd rather go out with one or two people. I don't particularly like to go out with 20 people, Mm -hmm. you know, so in my private, you know, dealings with, with my friends and my family, I'm more introverted, but there's a dynamism there. And any typological instrument, and there's many out there, is an attempt to fix and crystallize these categories. And I'll be very um, judgmental here. It is, it's an attempt on the part of the ego to dominate the mystery of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. It's one of many ways that the ego tries to dominate the mystery of the unconscious. So instead of you know, getting to know you as Laura and all of the various beings that are there in this person who calls herself Laura and to be open to that mystery, I will go, oh, Laura, oh, she's extroverted, 
and she's sensate and she's a thinker. And so now I don't have to deal with Laura. Right. I'm, I'm dealing with an extroverted sensate thinker. Mm-hmm. And I know all about them. Right. And it really blocks any kind of connection, I feel. And as we go on in our lives, it is actually a sign of furthering the individuation process for us to soften our edges a little bit around our preferred um, typological categories. Did you want to say anything about the inferior function? That was where I was going to go, yeah. So when you talked about the four functions, thinking, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition, those are categorized as follows. Sensation and intuition are two of the ways that we gather data. And thinking and feeling are two of the ways that we evaluate data. So in general, there might be a certain, think of them as tools, right? A certain set of those tools, thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition, that are more comfortable for me to use. Mm -hmm. And there are others that are less comfortable for me to use. And then there is generally one that is always just a little bit out of reach. So I'll use myself as an example. I'm fairly equal on thinking and feeling. I'm actually stronger in feeling, but because of my gender, when I was born, and the professions I chose to follow, I've developed a good thinking function. I have strong intuition. My inferior function, hands down, is sensation. I can give you an example just from today. Earlier today, I went to a gym that I go to near my house. And then after that, I had to go to the grocery store. Now, I want you to know, I didn't have my GPS working. I kept it in my um, pocket. It was my phone. But I thought carefully about all the turns I needed to take to get from my gym to the store I was going to, both of which you might expect are very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I found myself almost to Lincolnwood. I live on the northwest side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Before I realized every turn I had made, which I had carefully thought about, was wrong. Oh. Completely wrong. My sensate function just doesn't operate <laughs> easily, you know? Now tell us what sensation is. Sensation is the ability to gather data consistently and with fidelity using our sensory systems. So vision, hearing, touch, movement, smell, taste. All of those are examples of sensation. So in the example I gave, driving, you know, I have to look, you know, where I'm going, where's the sun, you know, I know this neighborhood, I know all these neighborhoods, so I should kind of, I should intuitively know how to turn, but I don't, and I can't figure it out. Now, I didn't get lost, and obviously I'm here talking with you, so... Mm-hmm. So you're saying that sensation is your inferior it function. It is my inferior function. And so what do we do with that? Well, in my case, guess what? I spent many years of my life studying music, which is 
any of the arts really engage sensation. And I started it early. So it isn't that, you know, these aren't deliberate in the sense that, well, you know, I'm really relying too much on intuition. I should develop my sensate function because that's going to, no. But the natural tendency toward wholeness had me migrating to these particular expressive forms. So that's the goal here, right? As yes. you said before, when you were talking about individuation, is wholeness. And so when I see people, I see this a lot on Twitter, um, in people's Twitter bio, it will have, you know, INFJ. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. And so they've identified that's what I am. And I'm <laughs> saying, no, 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 no. Our job is to develop the other. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. And often those, you know, I'm an INFP, I'm an ESTJ, they're often used defensively. <laughs> you know, well, oh, right. I, I know I didn't respond to your party invitation because I'm just, I'm so intuitive. <laughs> and I want to say, no, you're rude. <laughs> you know, that's not intuitive. That's rude. You respond. That's, yeah. you know. Um, so it's often used defensively. Unfortunately, I think because of all kinds of marketing and stuff like that, people are really being introduced to the concept of typology through those typological assessments. And granted, they're easier to understand than Jung's writings on psychological type, although they're pretty accessible. And because the tests that tell you your type really appeal to the ego. Yeah. They're very attractive. And unfortunately, it serves more to stop a process rather than enhance it. I would just like to take this opportunity to mention episode five with the late Daryl Sharp was all about Jung's model of typology. He wrote a book called Personality Types. Uh, it was published by his publishing company, Inner City Books, and it is available on their website as a free PDF download. And I will have a link to that in the show notes. Oh, that's so. Great. Is the transcendent function, does that tie in here? Well, it could. You know, the thing about Jungian concepts is they all ultimately tie in. Let's talk mm -hmm. about the transcendent function and maybe we'll get there. Okay. The transcendent function, if we just look at Jung's model of the psyche, we have the ego, which is the location of consciousness, and then we have the vast unconscious, okay? And you can almost imagine there's a real chasm between those two. There are so many uh, ways that the unconscious influences the ego, and the ego tends to be fairly unaware of it or develops awareness of it when something uncomfortable happens. The, the transcendent function is uh, an aspect of the psyche that generates a bridge between the conscious and the unconscious mind or the conscious and the unconscious parts of the psyche through the production of the symbol. So a lot of times Jungians talk about holding the tension, holding the tension between the conscious attitude and something in the unconscious that's making us uncomfortable or coming up that we weren't expecting. And 
if you hold the tension between those two, if you don't say, look, the only thing that matters is what I could see, feel, touch, taste. If I don't do that, or if I don't fall into the other trap of the unconscious is vast, I'm helpless. I'm at the mercy of the unconscious. If we just hold the tension between those two, a symbol emerges. It can emerge in dreams. It can emerge in a daydream. It can emerge simply because I'll read something totally unrelated, and all of a sudden in my mind I'll go, oh my, now I know why I'm having that difficulty with thus and so. So that the transcendent function is the means by which the conscious and the unconscious parts of psyche communicate, connect, and and really acknowledge the reality of one another. Holding the tension of the opposites, that was another huge thing that I learned in my analysis mm -hmm. that I had never heard anywhere else and was extremely difficult for me. But my analyst telling me and acknowledging and validating how difficult it is was yes. very helpful to me. Is this a good place to bring up synchronicity and the psychoid archetype? Sure. So Jung did coin the term synchronicity. This is his. Yes. And I've heard it misused probably more than any of his terms. Yeah, yeah. So synchronicity is, the, the technical definition is it is an a-causal, a, a non-causal principle of connection. And to understand synchronicity, we have to take a look at ways in which events in our day-to-day -day lives tend to be connected. Now, everyone is aware of causality. So if I knock a glass over and it has water in it, there will be water all over the floor. And that's cause-effect. I don't sit there and go, how did this water miraculously appear on the floor? Um, no, you, you caused it by your clumsiness. Mm -hmm. So that's a causal connection. Things can be connected simply in time. So I'm talking to you right now, and there's a truck going down the street. Those are happening at the same time. They don't have any particular relationship. Me talking to you didn't cause the truck to go down the street. The truck going down the street didn't cause me to talk to you. They're simply connected in time. Jung found that there was a third way that things are connected, and that is synchronicity. Things are connected in that they happen at the same time, and they have meaning to the experiencer. That's the hallmark of synchronicity. So... If you say I experienced a synchronicity, I have to take your word for it because it is only in you that the synchronicity is a synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a common way of uh, sort of dismissing synchronicity, which is a very powerful way for the unconscious to communicate with us, is by saying, oh, it's just a coincidence. And that completely eviscerates the idea of synchronicity. An example that Jung gives in his writings of how synchronicity was helpful 
he was working with a woman who, you know, she was coming to see him, but she really wasn't, you know, it, it took a lot to accept Jung's premises back in the day. And she had a dream. And in the dream, she dreamed of a scarab beetle, such as you would find in Egyptian uh, pyramids and tombs. And she was talking about this. And at that same moment, Jung says he heard a, a scratching outside the window of his office. So he went and opened it and brought in a beetle that was scratching at the window of his office at that time. And he showed it to the woman and he said, look, here's your scarab. And it isn't that, oh, by finding that, everything became sunshine and roses. Mm -hmm. But Jung often said that one of the primary values of a synchronistic experience is it proves the autonomy of the psyche. It proves that the unconscious is in connection with us all the time. And it serves to remind us that we don't know all the rules by which this world is constructed. And so synchronicity becomes a very powerful tool in helping people understand what this life is all about. And we need to do something yes. with the experience, right? Yes, absolutely. And again, it is only the experiencer that can really decide what to do. The most important thing is don't ignore it <laughs> because, you know, there's something else that's fairly common is people kind of get off on synchronicity. Oh, I had a synchronicity. Right. Ooh. Well, first of all, it's nothing special. And secondly, if psyche is taking that step to communicate with you, there's something pretty important you need to pay attention to. And so it really, for me, is a call to honor unconscious material, maybe at a time when the ego doesn't particularly want to. Yeah. I'd like to move on to Jung's concept of active imagination. So active imagination was a tool that he developed as a means of deepening our relationship to the unconscious. In particular, active imagination is very useful with dream images that are particularly enigmatic or puzzling. And the process involves, it's sometimes referred to as dreaming the dream onward. So let's say I dream of being in a house I've never been in before, and I notice that there's a lot of passages, and I open a door and there's a tunnel, and I don't particularly want to go down that tunnel. But I have a feeling that there's something important there. So when the analysis would bring that in, we'd, we'd explore the dream in all of the ways that we usually would. And then I might say, you know, I think I'd like you to do an act of imagination with that tunnel. And what that would involve is not in the office, but on their own. It's a combination of relaxing the body and focusing the mind. So you get yourself in a comfortable position and try to relax your body as much as possible and bring up the image that you want to explore in your mind's eye and then begin to explore it. So go into the tunnel and look around 
and see if there's anything there. See if there's any people. See if there's any whatever. Um, you could do active imagination on a dream figure, a, a person or an animal or, or an object in a dream. Uh, the one restriction that we usually put on it is you shouldn't do active imagination with uh, anyone who is actually a person currently in your life. And the reason for that, there's a lot of <clears throat> explanations, you know, ooh, it's manipulative and ooh, it's, you know, some kind of dark, magical, and eh, I don't go too much for that. But if I have difficulty with a person, I need to go to that person and find a way to talk to them, not have it in my mind where, you know, I'm not giving them the opportunity to respond to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I dream of, you know, someone wearing a dark coat, nobody I ever knew, didn't remind me of anybody, but they keep beckoning to me to follow them. Well, that might be a figure that I could do an act of imagination with. And there, it's very much like um, meeting a person for the first time in waking life. So you go into it and introduce yourself, wait to see what that figure offers. And many, many people, when, you, when they're first introduced to the concept of active imagination, think it's kind of baloney. And at first, it could seem that you're making up the conversation. But mm -hmm. if you persist, all of a sudden, you begin to get things from that figure or from that whatever that you didn't expect yeah. and that you didn't predict. And that's a very valuable um, and humbling experience for the ego. In Jung's work, he was very interested in, of course, we have to have a strong enough ego, right? Our ego complex has to be strong enough to allow us to make it through our lives. But Jung was very interested in making sure that people relativized the ego complex. And what that means is the ego has to understand that it's valuable, but it's not the whole story. So the ego that identifies as Ken is important for me in the world to, you know, have that identity and, and be able to interact with people from that identity. But Ken is not the only game in town here. There's a lot more going on in this presence here that calls itself Ken. And active imagination can put you in touch with that. It's a way of relativizing the ego and allowing the ego to understand that it doesn't necessarily create its own reality, but it definitely responds to it. And a great example of active imagination is Jung's Red Book. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's like the example, the, the example that is absolutely supreme um, because it's so honest. Not supreme in the sense that we should take the Red Book and follow its dictates or whatever. But Jung was so faithful in documenting the active imaginations that he was experiencing and interacting with the figures in, in a way that respected them. And that's a model, I think, for everybody approaching the unconscious because there's a, there is a tendency to denigrate the unconscious because it's unconscious, 
And it often is at odds with the ego's intent. But, you know, it doesn't have to be. So that about covers Jung's terminology for today. And Dr. James, you had promised that you would do a little bonus content here. Um, With your mathematical background, I had asked you if you would be willing to speak a little bit about the esoteric symbolism of the number seven. Yes, yeah, I'm happy to do so. And I would uh, do it in conjunction with the esoteric symbolism of the number three, if I may. Okay. Because they're kind of connected. Some of this comes from Jung. Some of this comes from teachings of others. But Jung cast a wide net in terms of coming to understand these things. Obviously, the number seven is a very important number. And we see references to seven in scriptures, you know, seven days of creation. We see seven, for example, there's seven notes to the musical scale. Traditionally, the color spectrum is divided up into seven colors, although there's probably an infinite number of colors, but we usually do that. It's almost as though psyche uses seven as a way to somehow understand processes in the world. And that's a way to look at it. Seven is a number of development, number of creation. Uh, Seven refers to the building up of a reality. So whether it's seven days of creation or the, the reality of, you know, things take time and we have to proceed in a stepwise manner, seven has that kind of archetypal connection. Seven also uh, reminds us, if we just look at, for example, and this is more from Gurdjieff, but if we look at the scale, the musical scale, um, everyone knows do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, and then do is just a repetition at an octave up. But if you look at the notes on the scale, there's very interesting sort of counsel to be taken from that. Because if if people are familiar with notes on the scale, and if not, we'll just think of a piano. If you start at the, the note C, you would go from C as Do to D to E. Each of those is a full step. So when I go from Do to Re, that's a full step. When I go from Re to Mi, that's a full step. But when I go from Mi to Fa, that's only a half step. So it's do, re, mi, fa, and then sol, la, ti, and then the next do is another half step. So the way that is uh, interpreted symbolically is that in the development or the unfolding of any process, there are certain aspects of the process that just unfold naturally. That would be the full steps, do, re, mi, but then at a certain point in any process of development or unfoldment, there is something else that's needed to continue the process. And generally, that's referred to as consciousness or effort or work. So that, in other words, the, the places in the scale where it isn't a full step but a half step, that's where the ego has to come in and support 
the uh, process. And if we think about how many of us are often, you know, we start something and then it fizzles out. Uh, we, we take the first initial steps, but we don't carry it to completion. This is implied by the number seven as exemplified in the musical scale. Because development doesn't happen without participation of the one who is experiencing the development, as well as all the other forces that come together. So seven is a very powerful image of growth, change, and our ability to cope with the world, and not just cope, but thrive in the world. The number three, in contrast, is usually spoken of as a number that reminds us what's necessary for something to exist. So the seven is about development or coming into being, and three is about what do we have to do to simply exist? And we have to somehow balance three forces. And those forces could be considered a force that wants to sustain, a force that wants to destroy, and then a force that balances those two things, equilibrates them. So for example, and this is not just Jung, this is everywhere. Let's take Freud's example of the two fundamental drives that Freud felt were part of the, the fundamental drives in a part of the uh, psyche that he referred to as the id. These are terms that are not commonly used in Jungian circles, although we certainly understand what they mean. So these two drives that Freud pointed out was the drive to pleasure and the drive to death. The terms that he used to refer to these, the pleasure principle was called eros, and the death principle was called thanatos. And as human beings, we live sort of suspended between those two things. And the job of being human is to figure out how to balance my attraction for pleasure and my attraction toward death. That's from a Freudian perspective. Mm -hmm. So we see the three. We have the pleasure principle, the death principle, and the principle of equilibration that involves the ego engaging with those two very powerful forces that have their way with us, right? We seek pleasure as, as human beings, and we will die. And there are many, many ways that we experience death, even if it isn't our own physical death at that point. Um, so in, for, in Jung's psychology, we see this three appearing in uh, some of his alchemical writings when he refers to the axiom of Maria. And I know we're not getting into alchemy here, but the axiom of Maria is uh, Maria Prophetissa was a female alchemist in the late Middle Ages. And the alchemists always had to be very circumspect in how they communicated what they were doing. Because, of course, at the time, if it were made known that someone was practicing as an alchemist, they would very often be killed because it, it was considered uh, sacrilegious or blasphemous 
Uh, but the axiom of Maria goes like this. One becomes two, two becomes three, and out of the three comes the one as the fourth. And Jung saw this as a model for psychic growth and health. So one is a state of total undifferentiation. When it splits into two, we then fall into the either or, and we begin to be able to process something. One becomes two, the two becomes three. We could be caught between either or, either or, if we hold the tension, a third thing develops, that's the three. And then we have what we can visualize as a triangle. And that triangle is a stable figure that is its own reality. And out of that stability comes the unity as the fourth element. And Jung writes about this in a variety of, of places. Volume 9, when he talks about the phenomenology of the self. I should add that all of the concepts that we've talked about today, Jung deals with in great detail in his collected works, where you see how frequently he changed his mind, modified these concepts. But the idea of three as referring to the equilibration of apparently diverse or, or forces that are trying to be separate, as human beings, we have to figure out how to hold that tension together. And that's, that is a symbolism of the, of the three. So you have the three and the seven. Seven is about development and uh, coming into being. And three is how do you maintain, sustain that which has come into being. And then numerologically, seven plus three gives us 10, which again, if we look at number symbolism, is a number of wholeness, fullness, completion. We see this reflected in the Kabbalistic tree of life, which is a particular arrangement of 10 nodes called sephirot. Um, that the Kabbalah is a form of Jewish mysticism. The Kabbalists say that if you understand these 10 emanations of God, you will understand everything about the universe. And that's really a combination of the three and the seven. As I'm sure the audience knows, I asked about the number seven because of the new BTS album, yes. Map of yeah. the Soul 7. And I know that you've had the chance to look at a few of their videos and was wondering yes. if you just had any comments you'd like to make uh, as we close out this episode. Well, first, I was um, I was aware of them, but quite honestly, it was something that you had said maybe a couple of months ago when we met that really made me interested in that group. And when I watched the videos, I was struck by the beauty and I was struck by the profound messages in the images. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I have to understand the songs in translation because I, I don't speak Korean. But um, very definitely we're looking at, at some sort of call, I believe. You know, I'm not idealizing them. I, I wouldn't even call myself a fan. But I certainly can witness 
beauty and some profound imagery when I see it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, what we're seeing there. And maybe it's to contribute to our development. You know, why are they coming now? <laughs> Which is a, right. that's a great Jungian question. You know, often if we get stuck with a dream, I'll say to my Alisan, why do you think you're having this dream right now? And, you know, relating all of this to the present moment really enhances and adds dignity to, in, in what we're talking about, a work of art or the work of art that our psyche produces that we call a dream. The dreamlike quality of the videos that I saw is just unbelievable. Thank you so much for everything that uh, you've shared with us today. I really appreciate your time, Dr. James. Thank you very much. Please visit the website, speakingofjung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. You can help support Speaking of Jung at no extra cost to you just by shopping at Amazon.com through any of the Amazon links on our website or by registering through our links for any of the online video courses offered by the Jung Society of Washington, D.C. You can start these courses anytime, go at your own pace, and you'll have lifetime access to the material. You can find all of the details on the courses page at speakingofjung.com. So with special thanks to the C.G. Jung Center in Evanston, Illinois, and the entire BTS Army, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young.